This week on The Record, a very special guest. Hi, it's David McGee. And this week I spoke with Jeffrey Bugner Ford about the week's worth of activities that Bristol is hosting to mark the 100th anniversary of his famous father's birth. Tennessee Ernie Ford became one of the biggest stars in the entertainment industry, but he never forgot his hometown. This week, his hometown returns the favor with music and storytelling and memories. Buck talks about that and also tells a unique story about how Ernie came to record his biggest hit song, 16 Tons. All this week on The Record. So, uh, how, how cool is it that, that your dad's hometown is, is throwing a party for his what would have been his 100th birthday? I, I, man, I, I have to tell you, it's so, so strange that you're leading with that because I was... I was just sitting here thinking. I was writing a little essay uh, about the the event, and I, I frankly am, am overwhelmed by the in, by, by the incredible dedication and effort that so many people in and around Bristol, and so many organizations headed by and staffed by so many amazing people are all putting in so much effort to this event. It's it's as humbling a thing as I have ever experienced in my life. That that's that's the the best way that I can put it. It is a a humbling experience. Uh, when I say it's it's you're right, it's really cool. You're absolutely right. It's, it's coolness. It's off the coolometer. The, the even, I like that. It's not even it's it's beyond pegging. There's a little crack in the glass. <laughs> um, you know what I'm saying? I mean, yeah. I I uh, the the other day I did a uh, an interview with uh, uh, on WSM with Devin O'Day on uh, uh, on their afternoon drive time, and you know it's a it's an AM stalwart. It's the air castle of the South, and they reach a lot oh, yeah. of people and and. And I had my smartphone in front of me with, with the, the listings of all of the organizations that are participating in some way in, in this four days. And it's, uh, it, it is as humbling a thing as, as I have ever experienced. And I, I, uh, I, I'll have to tell you, I mean, there have been more than, it's been more than once when I have uh, had to stop and reach for a box of Kleenex when I when I think about the effort that's gone down, and that's I know I'm I'm you know uh, <laughs> I, I know I'm, I'm I'm covering a lot of base with this, but I'm yeah. just overwhelmed. What do you think your dad? Because you, you, and I only got to meet your dad once or twice, so I, I don't I don't claim to to have known him, but only, he he seemed to be a very humble man for the amount of success that he had. How do you think he would react to to this uh, to this week's events? Well, you know, when I was writing my, my book, River of No Return, uh, one of the, you know, I, I, I wanted it, it, first of all, it was not a biography, it was a memoir about two people. And and because of his you know, lifelong relationship with, with my mom, uh, I wanted to, to get beyond everything, and, and including just limiting myself to my own memories, and 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 find out 
everything I could that was true about both of these people. Mm-hmm. And the one thing that I, the one thing that I, I learned and and have, for all practical purposes, used as kind of a mantra, is that Ernie Ford was an ordinary man who was blessed with an extraordinary talent, and his ordinariness is what kept him as, uh, in, in the word that you used, as humble uh, a man as he was throughout not only his life but his career. Um, there, there were more times than not uh, in, in the light, in the spotlight, at the center of it all, when the look that I remember upon my dad's face more times than not was who? Me? Mm. This is about, this is for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and uh, uh, you know, he, he kept that attitude uh, deep in. You know, the other day, I, I, we've been doing a lot of uh, archival video uh, uh, promotion for the event, uh, dropping a lot on, on Facebook and all on. And uh, one of the uh, short clips that, that uh, I posted the other day, and it still is just a, a uh, stunning thing to watch, is Dad's in, uh, um, receipt and his aunt being honored with the Presidential Medal of Freedom in mm-hmm. 1984 by Ronald Reagan. Uh, you know, this is the highest, the highest honor that a sitting president can can bestow can give to a civilian. It doesn't get any higher than that. And for Ernest Ford, and I remember he remember him standing back there as Ronald Reagan, who was an old friend stepped back after his words and handed that to Dad. I, I remember the look on his face, and it was a look I had known. It was etched into me. And that look was, this cannot be happening to me. <laughs> this must be for somebody else. Uh, and and uh, I'll tell you, the, the, um, this, this year being what it is and celebrating what we are, uh, marking the, the, the centennial as we are, uh, that the truth of who the man was uh, is is something that I I've been paying a very very great deal of attention to, and it's uh, becoming something that is humbling me more that I learn about it even this late in my life. So I think I think first of all he would be blown away uh, uh, at this happening if he was still here. Mm-hmm. Uh, Second, he would want to be down there in the center of town. He would want to be at the. He he would be. He mm-hmm. would want to be at the paramount, and he would want to be throwing his arms. Well, at a hundred, maybe, maybe lightly tossing his arms uh, uh, across Sid Oakley's neck and and uh, uh, across all those folks that have meant so much to him in his life. Uh, and uh, and he would be he would be starstruck if that would be possible. What it's it's been a long time since your dad passed away. It's been a long time since he was uh, an entertainment star. That his his name was was out there. That he was on TV all the time. I, I know the reruns are still out there, but do do the does the average person that you encounter do they still appreciate? Do they still recognize the magnitude of 
of his of his stardom? You know, uh, uh, it's it's interesting that you that you you know are painting that picture because it is a uh, a constant uh, effort, but also a constant surprise to continue to keep his persona and his profile and his brand, if you will, uh, in front of enough people of, of, of an age that will continue and perhaps, uh, you know, continue that tradition. And, and mm-hmm. in some, in many respects, we are, we are blessed with a couple of things that for all practical purposes and for all artistic purposes, kind of separated uh, Ernie Ford from a larger group of the herd of the uh, of of the the the, the, the stable and and uh, uh, collection of classic era artists. And one of those things that separated him, and that continues to be a source of generating new, younger fans was 16 Tons. 16 Tons was written by Merle Travis in Mm -hmm. 1946. It was part of the very first boxed set of 78 LPs that was ever made. (laughs) And it was part of a collection of folk songs written by and some adapted by Travis that included a song called No Vacancy. And that song was written by Travis as a, a, uh, a coming-to-task song for the United States government's failure to provide adequate housing for servicemen after World War II. And he, because of the, the poignancy of the lyrics, Merle Travis, as a songwriter, was added to the House on American Activities Committee list of names of possible seditious activity. When 16 Tons became known to the song that dealt with the plight of the, the American coal miner in essentially in servitude to the mining companies, as a rally for unionization, and that, in 1946 and 47, was akin to speaking positively about communism. And Travis's image, his blip on the government's radar, went up higher, so high, in fact, that in the late 1940s, it was not uncommon for members of the HUAC Advisory Committee to visit radio stations around the country and discourage them politely from playing Merle Travis music. One of those disc jockeys that was visited by those people at that time was Ken Nelson, who went on to become the head of A&R for Capitol Records. Hmm. Leap Leap ahead to 1955, when Ernie Ford is really approaching the zenith of his popularity. His television star hadn't begun to rise. And he was literally 300 days on the road. He was fresh off I Love Lucy. He was 
fresh off I'll Never Be Free with K-Star. And his jukebox profile was killing him. Nation to nation. Across the world. He was two tracks behind in his uh, in his contract with Capitol Records. And was preparing to do his daily television show before he left on tour. One of the guests that one afternoon was scheduled to be Merle Travis. But Merle Travis opted out at the last minute because the government came in and told NBC, Merle Travis cannot sing these songs. And included in the songs he couldn't sing was 16 Tones. Merle Travis refused to be on the show, one of Dad's closest friends, because he refused to be told what to sing. Mm. Dad, Dad gave the song, because he loved the song, knew this, had known the song for years. And Dad had his arranger, Jack Fashionado, take the TV band and put an arrangement together. And Dad did the song live on the morning show. <clears throat> when it was discovered that he had done the song and was intending on recording it for his next session, he was told flat out at Capitol Records. His producers, Lee Gillette and Ken Nelson, were told flat out by Lee Denny's people in House on American Activities in L.A., this will kill Ernest Ford's career. This song was written by a known communist. This song was written by a man who has professed seditious concepts against the United States of America. And if Ernie Ford sings this song, it'll be the last song of his career. They agreed to put the song on the B-side because at that time, you know, in 1955, B-sides died. They simply died. They were fillers on mm -hmm. the back of records. Mm -hmm. Nobody cared about it. And the promotional copy would go, and they, they shot him out. The 16 tons is a B-side to You Don't Have to Be a Baby to Cry. Dad did the song because he wanted Merle to make the money. Because Merle Travis was his best friend. Mm -hmm. Ernest, Ford, uh, Ernest Ford cared not a thing about the politics of the day. Even though, one month after he recorded 16 tons, the House on american Activities Committee had their famous interview with Pete Seeger. They were going after the folk singers. Sixteen Tons was released as the B-side, and we think history seems to lend itself to our supposition that it was a DJ in Kansas City that mistakenly flipped the disc. And in four weeks, within six weeks, it became the fastest-selling single in the history of the music business. By the end of two months, it was being touted as perhaps the fastest selling song, biggest selling song ever. It could sing White Christmas. It could sing a number of other songs. And the thing that has kept Ernie Ford, one of those two things that has kept Ernie Ford so vital and ardent in the minds and hearts uh, and on the repertoire of so many people of so many different age groups, even today, it's because of the timelessness of that song. If you have ever been behind on your car payment, if you're in debt to a credit card company, 
if you have a student loan that is strangling you, that song still makes sense culturally, socially, and politically. It still makes enough sense that we still have people in the tens of thousands all over the world who write to us, who still who still do entire stories on that song alone. And that tells me something. That tells me that there is great power in that song. I was at a, I was with my literary agent in New York City about uh, two months ago. And uh, Grand Central Station, one of the restaurants, I can't remember what it was, the little bistro that overlooks the main, the main promenade down below. And, you know, it's one of those New York restaurants where you're, 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 you're next, the table next to you, you know, you, you move your pinky and you're hitting their napkin. You know? <laughs> okay. And, and we were having the same kind of conversation that we're having right now, the same sort of question, you know, what about the people who are the age group that's dying? And I said, okay, let me, okay, let, I'm going to do something. So I just stood up. I, I'm an idiot with this kind of thing. I just stood up and I tapped my glass. And I said, good afternoon, hope everybody's enjoying the lunch. There were 50, 75 people. And I said, help me out here. Any of you that can finish this line. So, and I snapped my fingers. Some people say, and I stopped. Every single person in there, man out of mud, sixth, and they're going with it. If I had said, do you remember Tennessee any fourth? Maybe over here. But that song, that song still resonates in people's minds in the middle of fucking Manhattan. That's amazing. And and to to me, that is an amazing thing. Less about Bernie Ford than it is about the song that he brought. And 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 still means something. Uh, you know, uh, John Lennon said that it was the very last Marxist song ever written in protest music in America. That's a heavy thing. That's a heavy thing. The other thing that Ernie Ford accomplished musically in his early, early career was maybe, maybe the best music he ever recorded, say for one album. And that was the very early country boogie stuff that he excelled with. Mm -hmm. A tight for a tight band. You know, he in '53, Dad went into we we did a uh, we did a big CD set and a digital set not long ago called Six Thousand Sunset Boulevard, and that title was a title drawn directly from the name of the studio where in '53. He went in with Cliffy Stone's band and did 263 live 15-minute radio shows over about uh, a month and a half. Mm. And uh, uh, only repeated 15 songs twice. That was it. Uh, it was the most unbelievable set of music. All live. Dad, the band, a one of the rotating Capitol Records female singers of the day, Coming in, he used about 11 of those girls, and they would come in, they would do a solo, he would do a duet with them, Bandit would do a solo, he would do the closing number, they would do a uh, a little piece, a little jingle for 
their their uh, sponsor and uh, and out. And it was Coffee Clatch on the rooftop, uh, 15-minute radio show with the hottest band in America. The hottest band alive at the time. And a lot of that music and a, and a, a huge slab of his Capitol sessions that produced the, 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 uh, uh, the Capitol versions of those, many of those same songs, set him apart from a lot of other artists of the day because he, he grooved with that so heavily, a lot of people thought he was black. When he did uh, stuff like Shotgun Boogie and Blackberry Boogie and, and uh, 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 a lot of the early ballads, people compared him to a lot of the early uh, black uh, balladeers. And that image specifically generated him to the top of the heap in England. And he blew them away when he went there for a command performance in 1953 at the Palladium. Very first artist of his kind labeled a country western star that ever played the London Palladium. And it was SRO, two shows a day, seven days, standing room only. He killed it. That's remarkable. It is. His musical legacy over there, and I know I'm taking a long time to get to my point, his musical legacy in Europe, because of his boogie influence, is the second thing that continues to buoy his profile, the knowledge of the music he did, and the impact that he made with that music over there on with a, a demographic of 18 to 40. I'm not kidding you. There are more kids over in Europe wearing pig pants and, and two-tone Oxfords and hair slicked back that can tell you what color socks Ernie Ford was wearing on the 53 session when he was with so-and-so and did such-and-such. And there are legions of those fans over there. <laughs> That's that, great. Uh, and, and it is great to know every lick Speedy West did, who know who knew that Jimmy Bryant was, was the greatest guitar player alive at the time, who knew that Billy Liebert was the only cat they knew that could play entire Tommy Dorsey horn lines on a freaking accordion. And that music that Ernie Ford cut and did then, two years before 16 Tons was even laid down, was some of the most cutting edge and uh, uh, absolutely off-the-charts music. And that music embedded him in the musical psyche of, of entire generations in, in England and Europe. And those people continue to keep him uh, as elevated today as he ever was. And that just blows me away. Blows me away. You know, to, I mean, I, I just sent a thing to Bristol. I mean, you can relate to this. And these numbers are, you know, relatively small. But look, between uh, January 11th and today... I've, I've created uh, a number of different drops. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine separate drops on just my Facebook page. 
directly related or indirectly related in some way to the event. We've generated 141 hits. Uh, excuse me, 1,141 hits, 215 comments, and 32 shares in just this brief period of time. <laughs> and 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 that's you know that's more than a thousand people that are that I know are are aware of him as aware of him through the 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 reach of social media. There are uh, there are people of every age group imaginable that chime in, comment in. I mean, hell, it's uh, it, it has enabled us, Dave, to reach an entire world of of people, and those three things really are the three things that have kept Bernie Ford as vital a personality to to current. And, uh, you know, new generations of fans. It blows me away. On the Record is made possible by David Cricker, Delena Matthews, David McGee, Nate Hubbard, and Tim Hayes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.